Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Christina Namath, and I'm the travel director here at the club. Um, Before we begin, I'd like to ask that you all make sure that your cell phones are silenced, turned off. I also want to let you know about an upcoming program that likely will interest you. On June 4th at 6 p.m., Judge Cordell will be interviewing the writer and social commentator Daphne Muse for a program entitled Civil Rights History Through Letters. You can sign up for that event on our website. So the club travel program runs about 25 trips a year, internationally and domestically. Earlier this month, we ran our first ever civil rights trip to the south of the United States. On announcing the trip, members of the club approached me and said that they wanted to support some young civic leaders to go on the trip as a way of passing on the torch to a younger generation. And as serendipity would have it, the club had just been exploring partnership ideas with San Francisco Achievers, a Bay Area nonprofit organization that provides college scholarships and mentoring services for African-American young men in the San Francisco Unified School District. Both organizations approached their members and their board and uh, asked them about starting to create a scholarship fund. So on behalf of the Commonwealth Club and San Francisco Achievers, I would like to thank everybody here who did support that effort. Thank you. Uh, Here to say a few words about San Francisco Achievers is Amber Childress. Good evening. Um, we're so excited for this opportunity tonight and, um, and um, for the opportunity that our scholars had. And I'd like to um, real quickly ask um, the board, of our founders here tonight, and also staff to stand up, and also volunteers, um, just to show the, the support that we have in the room. <laughs> so thank you all for being here. Um, I'm here representing the... Um, the organization on behalf of um, our executive director who's on his honeymoon this week. Um, otherwise, he would be here. Um, so we're, we're just really appreciative of this opportunity and how quickly it happened. Um, we met one of the board members at our gala last year, celebrating 10 years um, of existence here in San Francisco. And um, Dwayne, the executive director, and I came and met um, did a tour, and I think within a week we decided that this was an opportunity that we should explore. So we're just really grateful um, and excited for the program to start. So thank you again for being here. All right, well now on to our program, On the Road to Freedom and Home Again. Our trip discussion leader and moderator for tonight is retired Superior Court Judge Lodoris Cordell. Our scholarship winners are Hatim Mansouri, a junior at Morehouse College in Atlanta, and David Miles, graduate of San Jose University and a mentor with SF Achievers. Please join me in welcoming Judge Cordell, Hatim, and Miles. Uh, Before we start our conversation, first, thank you all for being here. Um, I have been on two adventures before going on this one. I've been to South Africa and been to Israel. This trip topped them all. Um, It was an amazing experience, and uh, we'll hear 
the reactions of our young people here. And I know that there are folks in the audience here who went with us on this trip. And if you're here and went on the trip, just raise your hand so folks can. Uh, Amazing. All right. So we should have a good conversation and we will have Q&A for the final 15 minutes. All right. So after flying into Jackson, Mississippi, 35 of us went on a road trip like no other, traveling by bus and covering 900 miles from Mississippi to Arkansas to Tennessee to Alabama, visiting key sites of the civil rights movement of the 1950s, the 1960s, and the 1970s. The ages of our travelers ranged from 20-somethings to 70-somethings. We were men and women, gay and straight, African-American, Japanese, Caucasian, Jewish, biracial, all of Indian, and all of which made for a variety of experiences. And among us were two young men who won their scholarships to travel with us, Miles and Hatim. So we have about 45 minutes to talk about their experiences on a journey that led us to iconic places and that allowed us to hear from people who are icons of the civil rights movement. So let's get started. So Miles and Hatim, um, if I were to come up with two or three adjectives just to describe the whole experience, the, the ones I come up with are, I have three, life-changing heartbreaking, and fulfilling. So I'd like you all, what adjectives would you use, two or three, to describe just the overall experience? I would say, number one, educational. Number two, um, I would also use heartbreaking because, um, oh, I'm not explaining. We'll get into it. Yeah, Yeah. go ahead. (laughs) All right. All right. Uh, I would say eye-opening, enriching, and fulfilling. Okay. So I I want you all to know that I've let them know they can have a couple of minutes for each of them to respond to questions because I have a whole lot of them to go. I want to make sure we get as much in before we then have Q&A, okay? So that means I will cut you off if you start going too long. All right, right, here we go. So before this trip, um, what did you know? about the civil rights movement? Hatim? All I, all I knew really was, well, I knew a, a little bit, but, you know, the main thing was Martin Luther King, SNCC, uh, Malcolm X. But even though I knew about these things, I didn't really have a sense of the feeling. And when I went to uh, the South and toured the South, that's when I really got a sense of the feeling, like the, the raw emotions that were there, the little details that they didn't really teach you in high school and, you know, the history books. All right. So you're, you're a student at Morehouse, so you're, you're in Atlanta, so you would have this information, of course, and King is connected to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. But tell the folks basically before this, so where were you born? I was born in Morocco. So you are a Moroccan, and you came here at what age? I was here when I was almost six years old, five. And so you came to this country at the age of six and then were a part of then just being here in America and going yes. to school. Got it. Okay. Miles, what did you know? <clears throat> Before this trip, I'll be honest, my knowledge of the civil rights movement and things that had happened in our history was very limited. 
Um, even in the job that I have right now, working with African-American young men, you know, one of the things that we talk about sometimes is that black history, what they teach, because a lot of our history is relegated to one month, it's always the same things. We'll start off with slavery. We're going to talk about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. We'll mention something about Harriet Tubman, and we're going to fast forward to Obama. And that's kind of history. <laughs> um, obviously, there's so many other different things, but I would say, you know, when I graduated high school, I did a little bit more research myself to try to find out um, a little bit more about our history. Going on this trip made me realize I didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the few things that I just said, like, oh, they, I should know everything about Martin Luther King. I know everything about Malcolm X. That's what they taught you every single year. Mm-hmm. Um, no, going down there, even just focusing on one thing, like, okay, Martin Luther King, all the different facts that I found out about him <laughs> was, was um, so much more than I ever thought it was. And so had a very limited knowledge before coming to this trip. And Miles, tell, tell everyone who you are in terms of ethnicity. I find that really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, well, I, uh, I'm African-American and half Chinese. I come from a family of roller skaters. My dad met my mom in Golden Gate Park. He saw her one day and at a stop sign on 7th Avenue. So we came and did his little trick. And they've been roller skating ever since. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Miles. So our first stop was Jackson, Mississippi, where we spent time with Minnie White Watson. And we spent time with her at the home of Medgar Evers. So I ask you two, um, and either of you can jump in whenever, did you know about Medgar Evers before this trip? And what do you think of him now after being in his home and walking in the driveway on the very spot where he fell in his driveway from an assassin's bullet? So did you know about him before and how do you feel about now? I heard his name mentioned before. Um, so it's one of those things where it's like, here's this person that did some things for the civil rights movement, but again, didn't really have a, a good working knowledge of who he was, um, who his family was, the, the contributions that they had made. And so going to the house, hearing the story about all of the things that he did to contribute, going to the house, and then also seeing just, you know, it really forces me to think about what it would be like if I lived during that time, what I've had the courage to do some of the things that these people have done when their life and their families is being threatened. You see, you look at the house and you see the bullet holes that go through to the kitchen, to the fridge. Um, and yet they still continue to try to fight uh, for civil rights, for freedom, for different people. And so that was very, you know, it's one thing to know what some of these people that did him specifically, but then you go back and see, and you look at the house and you look at the things that they'd went through and you, you hear these stories about how they still continue to persist. It's very uh, inspiring. Yeah. Um, um, I never heard of Medgar Evans Evers. I never heard of Medgar Evers before. And honestly, after hearing about him, learning about him more, he was a Martin Luther King before Martin Luther King. Um, and I think he paved the way for Martin Luther King to continue what Medgar Evers, you know, started to do as field secretary for the NAACP. Um, he was trying to get people to vote. He was making sure that people, you know, helped each other out as a community. You know, he had this uh, very strong way of speaking, and he was very passionate about what he's doing. And so um, that was very inspiring as well. And and I think it's a shame that I didn't know, and I think more people should know about Medgar Evers. Now you know. I think it's great. That's great. Uh, It it was something, because I remember putting my hand, and some of you all did this, on the refrigerator where the bullet, there was a bullet hole. I mean, it was just really something to actually be there and experience all of that stuff. Emmett Till... Uh, was kidnapped, he was tortured, and he was killed in August 1955 in Money, Mississippi. Uh, And he was 14 years old. So you all, what was his crime? What was it that he was accused of doing? 
he had whistled at a Caucasian woman. All right. And so we visited the scene of the crime, right? Mm-hmm. We went to Bryant's grocery store in Money, uh, where the crime occurred. And then, which was um, just amazing to me, it was surreal. We then went to the courthouse and sat in the courtroom in Sumner, Mississippi, where two of his accused murderers were tried. And what did we do when we were in the courtroom? We were reading the apology that the city gave. To? To the family of Emmett Till. All right. And so all of us, the travelers, we sat in the courtroom, some in the jury box. This is the courtroom for a trial that lasted one hour and six minutes with a verdict of? Not guilty. Not guilty. Right. And I remember I was sitting in the judge's seat and some of you all were sitting at the council tables. Um, It was absolutely completely surreal. So in 2015, the Sumner City Council uh, drafted an apology, a formal apology to the family of Emmett Till. What do you all think about that, about the apology? What was your reaction? Uh, Reading that apology was surreal. So between everybody that was in the room, we read it line by line. and um, Everybody took a sentence. Right? Yeah. Right. And I think the thing that had me thinking about it was in the discussion that we had was usually when there's an apology that's made, there's an action afterward. Um, I apologize for doing this. These are the steps that we're going to take to rectify or make sure it doesn't happen again. And the, that wasn't necessarily in the apology. And so I think it's one of those things that, at least for myself personally, I appreciated that the apology was there, but it had me thinking about those next steps, um, what what they could potentially be. Well, team, do you think the apology accomplished anything? I don't think it did. Um, the reason being is because you can see the results of Mississippi right there in Mississippi. It's poor and no one, you know, people are still segregated, not legally, but financially. The people are still split up black and white. Um, people are not having uh, opportunity for income and stuff like that. I also think that, um, that, if the city can apologize, then I think the country should too for the slavery that it's that has been doing that has that it has been done. Interesting. Um, I don't know. I, I remember sitting there and hearing you all read the apology, and my thought was, having been on a city council, I was on a, the Palo Alto City Council. It <clears throat> takes a lot to get a governmental body to apologize for anything. Uh, particularly when it has to do with race. So I I agree with you, Miles, that uh, an apology is significant, but, you know, what comes after? And I do think that the folks in Sumner on that city council and in the city cared enough that they were going to do more. It just, you know, progress is slow, especially in Mississippi, like you pointed out. Um, So we moved on. And again, I'm just hitting just a few of the highlights. Believe me, there was so much more in Mississippi. Um, we moved on to, um, to Little Rock, Little Rock, Arkansas, and we met an icon of the civil rights movement. Um, there she is at the age of 16, one of the Little Rock Nine. She is today 75 years old, and her name is Elizabeth Eckford. Um, and we had a chance to sit down with her and listen to her. Um, so what was it like for you two listening to Elizabeth Eckford? For me, it was, it was kind of crazy because I'm like, wow, I read about you in my history books and I'm actually seeing you right before my eyes. <laughs> I've never thought I would ever meet somebody like that in my life. And it was just amazing to hear her speak about the history, the, what actually happened 
like through her own eyes through her own experience not by the you know the sugar-coated words of the history book i like to hear from the source and i heard it from the source and it was just kind of you know the things that happened to her was atrocious you know she tried her best to stay calm and people just you know she she even in the midst of the all of that she believed in the best of this you know this white woman that smiled at her but it must have been a an evil smile because as soon as she walked towards her she the white woman spit at her mm-hmm. and so just hearing that you know it, like again it, i got to f- get the sense and feel of the emotions the raw emotions that happened right. during that time how about how about you miles and, and what did you learn from her <clears throat> Uh, it was definitely surreal where you hear about these different stories, but you go to the actual school that she attended um, and thinking about the story where she talks about how she was trying to get to the bus stop while this mob basically formed behind her. I'm actually looking at how far the school is to the bus stop. We were at the um, school. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then she tries to make a phone call and you see the store that she tried to make the phone call and they shut the doors just before she got there. So just being there and looking at all the different areas like, wow. Again, the courage to I try to bring myself back in that era. I don't know if I would have tried to attend a school that was that was um, um, desegregated with with all of those different issues going on uh, in terms of safety. But I think one of the, one of the things that I mainly took away from being there and then also that? talking with her was, you know, all these different people that I have as heroes that are still my heroes. For example, Martin Luther King, one of my greatest heroes, right? Being able to talk to somebody like Elizabeth and hear her story and be there it made me realize that she's just as much of a hero as somebody like Martin Luther King. Like these are the people that were doing all these great things and making sacrifices for other people too. Sometimes they're talked about, sometimes they're not. But being in that room and talking to her was, um, I'm not normally starstruck, um, but it's just as you're sitting there, you're talking and she's, she's talking to you and you're like, all I could just think was wow over and over. Like, wow, just yep. thank you. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I remember I said to her, I said, thank you for your courage. And she cut me off. She said, I wasn't courageous. I was stubborn. Uh, and yeah. I think that is a characteristic of those who stuck it out and fought on the foreground and the front lines for civil rights. You had to be stubborn, right, yeah. in order to be able to make all this happen. Yeah, it, was, it was amazing. And then there was Scott Shepard. We had the opportunity to spend an hour with him as he told us about his rise to the Grand Dragon of the KKK of Tennessee and how he eventually turned away from that world. I'm very curious. What was your take on Scott Shepard? My take on Scott Shepard was that there's a beam of hope out there for every KKK member. If you're watching, it's not too late to give up. (laughs) Throw that robe away. Put it in your closet. Put it in the trash. Lit it on fire. Come and join us, us regular human beings. You feel me? Um, like I really believed in Scott Shepard's story, you know what I'm saying? Um, with Scott Shepard, he felt guilty. He regretted everything he did. I, I felt that, you know what I'm saying? Um, and whether or not, you know, people question whether or not it's legit, whether or not it's true, what he's doing, going to churches, going to these different venues and trying to prevent people like uh like him he said he had a rough childhood he just wanted to belong and the kkk was right there uh, recruiting so he was trying to prevent pe- he's trying to he's actively trying to prevent people from being just like him and joining the kkk currently so i think his story is great and is inspiring and um so you it, felt he was sincere i definitely did miles uh <clears throat> 
I almost didn't attend that that discussion that we had had just because I didn't. Why know if is I was, it? I think just the fact that he was a former member of the KKK. I'm already not a very forgiving person, and so it's just one of those things that was really difficult for me to think about the idea of sitting in a room and hearing this person just well, not justify, but um, I- explain why they took the actions that they did, mm-hmm. right or wrong. Um, but I'm extremely grateful that I did, just having the opportunity to be in that room and hear some of the things that he was saying. What was it like um, for you? Um, it made me op- it, it made me have to have an open mind. I think being in that room, the main thing I just kept thinking to myself was have an open mind and hear what he has to say. Um, you can make your judgments, whatever it is, after the conversation and everything, but at least hear what this person has to say. If you're going to have the opportunity to be here, you know, he, he kind of talked about the fact that he's not in the KKK anymore and he does these conversations like you had said, but he doesn't go and bring bodyguards. He doesn't, he doesn't, he just goes along by himself. And so one of the things that happened as soon as he got there, his daughter, um, she always checks up on him and everything. You know, the fact that he used to be a KKK member, she always wants to make sure he's safe and things like that. Um, she did call, right? She called. Yeah, she called. Yeah. yeah, just she to called. make sure that he was there. Uh, but all in all, I think by the end of the discussion, I was just kind of thinking that, yes, it is good that he's going around having the discussions with different people. But at the same time, it was also like, I would uh, imagine if I tried to put myself in those shoes, I would be feeling such an extreme level of guilt to where on one hand, I'm doing this for other people, but I'm also would be um, maybe going out to the community to make myself feel better um, if I if I'd wronged a people or a community. And so that's kind of what I thought what my thoughts were at the end of the discussion. No, I think we can make uh, an assumption that he did some bad stuff. Of course. All right? Yeah. Uh, he didn't talk about the bad stuff. He talked about recruiting. But I, I, I got a sense there was some bad stuff. Mm. So let's assume he did some really bad stuff, right? Okay. Can you, too, forgive him? In terms? Like, can you what, what do you mean bad stuff? Let's, let's, how kill bad people, are you? Kill people. Kill people. Okay, yeah. so or, killed- or assist, you know, in, in hurting people, beating them, killing them. Can he you, has to do his time. Can you forgive him? If, after he's done his time. Meaning? Meaning go to prison for what the crimes you've done. Then I'll forgive you. What about you, Miles? Consider forgiving him. I'm not quite I'm not quite sure I'd ever be able to forgive him, although I do think I would be open to the idea of contributing to some healing, if that's healing with a group, a community. Um, But me personally, no, no, not happening. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I'm not sure um, where I stand on Mr. Shepard. I uh, part of me was thinking, you know, what if this is just a big play, you know, like he's fooling us all and because he's been on tv um and then another part of me said no 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 i mean if he's he's not out asking for money to be paid to do any of this stuff so i'm, I'm kind of torn on it and i went because i was absolutely fascinated i'd never been in the room with a kkk person especially a grand dragon right mm-hmm. um so I, I was fascinated by it and just having the opportunity to be in that room i think was important okay um so, on to Memphis, uh, where Dr. King was assassinated April 4th, 1968. Uh, we went to the site of his murder, the Lorraine Hotel, which is now the home of the National Civil Rights Museum. How did you all fit? First of all, did you see the room in which Dr. King stayed the, 
when he, the night before, you know, he was assassinated. You all saw the room. Yeah, yeah. So how did you feel? I mean, we, the bed, everything, right? It was just as it was. How did you feel when you saw the room that he had slept in the night before he was killed? And also, across the street from the bathroom window from which he was shot, I remember going across and we were allowed to go in there. Did you all do that as well? Yeah, yes. Okay, so what, what was it like for you? Was it like, oh, this is just a museum thing? Or how did it hit you? Miles? Um, going to the Lorraine Hotel, first of all, we had an amazing facilitator. She knew all the Wasn't information she? about everything and was, was able so- to provide that information in, ex- in an extremely engaging way. Um, and so I thought that just made the experience a whole lot better as far as having somebody guide you that really knows just about everything there is to know about it. But to answer your question, as far as going into the room or the replica of the room, um, it was just kind of looking at that room like this is just a normal room. There's just a normal bed. It's a normal bathroom. You're a normal person. Um, yeah, like it's it's sometimes it's it's for as all of the great things that Martin Luther King and, Je- and all of these people did. At the end of the day, they're also they're normal people. They eat. They use the bathroom. They bleed just just like anybody else. And so sometimes, specifically with that room, going there and just looking at it, it was like wow, this person might have they might have done so many great things. But at the end of the day, they're just normal people that they had to go to sleep. They had to leave in, live in the hotel and everything. Right. And it was um. Very almost humanized Martin Luther King in my mind because he's such a legend and such an icon. And then I look, I, obviously, I know he got shot in terms of being killed, but you look at that room, it was like, wow. Yeah. Very normal. <laughs> yeah. Hatim, what do you think? For me, it was a very emotional time. Uh, I was teary eyed the whole time because I hold Martin Luther King uh, in such a high esteem. And he's, you know, he's an alumni of my school. So, you know, I treat him like my brother. Um, and so when I saw where he was killed, uh, it really brought a tear to my eye um, because, you know, it was it was, you know, it wasn't his time. It was too soon. And at the, and he he foreshadowed it. He foresaw what was going on in his last speech. And so that just makes it even more sad because he never talked about death before that speech. He's always talking about I don't want to die. But now he finally says I might die soon. But. I've seen, I've been to the mountaintop and I think you guys, you know, you know, come with me and we see, you know, we're going to prevail. And so that was just a very sad time. Yeah, it's hard, hard stuff. Jacob Burkle was a German immigrant and he used his home as a haven for men, women and children who were runaway, the runaway enslaved. His house was part of the Underground Railroad, and it's not actually a railroad, but a euphemism for the path to the north to freedom. So the enslaved hid in dark cellars and hidden passageways, and we had a chance to actually go into that house, that house, and to actually go into one of the hidden cellars where the enslaved stayed, sometimes days, sometimes weeks. So we had to go down into this dark cellar. So uh, describe what that experience was like for you all. Um, just so the, having the opportunity to walk down into that cellar and really just, I'll never be able to experience what that was like, but be able to just kind of look and have some of the stories explain. Um, I think the word just survival kept hitting me. I don't think I've ever had a time in my life where I've, I've been in a mode where it's like you, you're trying to survive. And through a lot of different challenges. And so when you go down there, you hear these stories of the Underground Railroad of different places where they they had uh, held different people um, for safety. And you go down and you see these different conditions. 
how there's just not even barely any room to lay down for one person, but there was five people that lived down here. Um, you know, the little, between all the concrete, they had little holes and stuff that they'd made to where you think to yourself, I could not fit through that. Five people had to fit through that every single day. Um, the bathroom, the, they call it the slop bucket. You don't have like out here, we got toilets and stuff. It goes down the drain and you don't smell any of it. Again, the word survival, like where you, nobody ever thinks to themselves, I want to be in this condition, but you see the bucket that they'd had, you seen that that bucket was there all day. Um, they probably had very limited food. And so we're trying to not just like be in that room, but to try to think about living in that room, uh, surviving in that room, sleeping in that room was very, that was very heartbreaking. It was just like, wow, I can't just, I just, yeah, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I agree with what Miles said. And also on top of that, it's interesting that you see that with the Underground Railroad and with uh, Burke, Burkle? Burkle. Burkle. Mr. With Burkle. Burkle, Mr. Burkle. He he was a person of power. He had privilege, and he used his power and privilege to help these slaves escape. I think it's very important in today's age that p- people who are who, who have power, who have privilege, need to help those who are you know um, not as privileged as them to actually bring them up to, to be on their same level. And so I think that was a very effective way to help people is to use your power and your privilege to actually help the people that. Uh, that needed the most. Yeah, that's a very good point. I, I, I know what I kept thinking about was um, the Jews uh, fleeing Hitler. I thought of Anne Frank hiding in the attic and the same kind of thing. So we're down in this cellar and just to even get down in it, right? And it's dark and it was damp and, um, and having to be there and be quiet, absolutely quiet, not a sound because your life was at stake. Um, and so it's one thing to read about it. It's another thing to actually put your body in that space and actually start to get a sense of the actual place. Um, my great-great-grandmother and great-grandmother on my mother's side were slaves. They were the enslaved and eventually worked their way after emancipation to North Carolina. So part of this experience was, almost all of it was so personal because I had no idea um, you know, where could, could some of my own family have been down in that cellar, in that, in that basement? Um, so very, very powerful. And the, the fact that the woman, Janet Moore, who put this tour together, Distant Horizons, thought to do that and said, oh, no, 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 we're really going to make this the real deal was to me extraordinary. And it's just one of the many extraordinary stops along the way. So, um, before we talk about our final stop in Alabama, let's talk for a minute or two about food. <laughs> All right. So uh, we ate at some remarkable places, uh, a few of which were the Big Apple Inn with its famous pig ear sandwiches, um, Johnny T's Bistro and Blues, uh, Frank Jones Corner, where we celebrated Miles' birthday. Yeah. Um, lunch prepared by Mary Hoover. Mary Hoover catered for the cast and the crew of The Help, the movie The Help, because the movie The Help was shot in that location and actual church we were in was the church used in the movie. So Mary Hoover fixed us lunch. Um, we had lunch also at the Delta Blues Hot Tamales. Um, delicious. So, um, so had you all ever had 
Southern food. And by the way, Mary Hoover said to us, I use four ingredients. She said pepper, salt, sugar, and love. Right? That was it. That's Southern food. So had you all ever had that Southern food experience? And, you know, what did you make of it? Well, for me, living in Atlanta, I had some of it. Yes. Some of the experience. But not to the degree that we experienced it. (laughs) Not nearly to the same degree. And especially with uh, Mary Hoover. She just embodied the South, the Southern hospitality. As soon as I walked in, she's like, hi, how are you? I felt like she was my mom. I was like, what's going on? (laughs) Um, And then she just, you know, she would talk to me and she said, yeah, help yourself. Yeah, go ahead. Because, you know, I like to eat. I have a big appetite. She Mm -hmm. said, go ahead. Seconds, thirds, fourths. I was like, yeah, I don't need to say anything else. I'll go in. Um, And she just, I had the best barbecue ribs in my life. Yeah. (laughs) It was amazing. She just knows how to, she put her foot in it and her heart in it. Uh, It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And Miles? Anytime I go on a trip, no matter what the purpose is, I always try to be conscious of my health. Every every hotel that we were in, they had gyms. They had full you know full machines that you needed to use. They had the pools and everything like that. We're walking around just about all day to the different locations that right. we go to. I thought I was going to lose a little bit of weight coming back from this trip. Nah. <laughs> um, some of the best food I ever had in my life. There's you between. Okay, ribs. I think most people that eat meat have probably tried ribs before. Um, I definitely had tried ribs before I went there. It's like when you got there, though, and you tried to pick up the rib, you couldn't because it was just falling <laughs> off the bone. Like when you think you know what tender is and then you feel what tender is and then you taste what tender is. It's um, everything out there was really great. All the different locations that we went to and um, that if I was to travel to the south, I'm sure there'd be a lot of different factors. But the food would definitely be one of the top ones. Like it was, it yeah. was amazing. Yeah, for sure. Um, Mary, uh, uh, um, who was the woman that prepared the food for the whole Mary, Mary, Mary Hoover. Mary, Mary Hoover. Hoover. Mm-hmm. Her, that was some of the best cooking I had ever had in my life. Um, <laughs> I knew it was going to be good. People were telling me that the food was from the movie and everything. We go down there. I see people's reactions like, oh, that was really good. I'm like, okay, maybe I'll just get two ribs. I want to save some for some everybody. And- I sat down and tasted one rib and some of the greens. I, I couldn't care anymore about anybody else. I had to get up and get more. I'm like, I'm sorry. Uh, but it was amazing. The food out there was amazing. And to think about what you had said, the ingredients. They didn't use all these different special things, salt and pepper and a little bit of love. Um, it was, it was, it was, but seriously, um, but it was extremely good. I, I still think about the food. And didn't we, didn't we stop the bus for you to go get a hot dog? Yeah, the, yeah. the famous hot dog. It was great. Yeah, it was amazing. Some um, place that was supposed to be known for. It was supposed to be known for their hot dogs. I mean, one guy got off and. Who got off? Somebody was. Michael. Michael, right? Michael. He was like, I'm getting off. Anyone want to come? No one else raised their hand. I said, why not? I'm, I, if you're going, I'm going with you. Not to get the hot dog. Smart move. So we had food, and then there was music. Um, We visited Malico Records in Jackson, Mississippi, and we hung out with the founder, Wolf Stevenson, and in Tennessee, Stax Museum of American Soul in in Memphis. Miles, you're into music. Yes. DJ. You had you called it as a control board. What do you call it? Uh, I, what, what was I, it? I was just a DJ controller. I DJ controller, right? Yeah. So you brought that on the trip. So, um, did you have a sense before this trip about how music had contributed and supported the civil rights movement? <laughs> no, I had a sense of how how popular and how much of an influence that blues music has had on all forms of music in general wasn't exactly informed on how much of an influence it had on the civil rights movement between the messages um, and, the t- and the type of sounds that they were making. 
um, but definitely going out there, going to those different, um, the record labels, Malico, um, and seeing, not just seeing the records, they have all these different plaques. You know, this album went platinum. This album was really famous and everything. But you hear them talk about some of the artists they had in these different eras and what they did to get successful and how the business changed from, um, you know, A-tracks or vinyl records to A-tracks to um, cassette tapes to CDs to now it's all digital on how, you know, they even had a hurricane over there to destroy like half of their stu- or a, a large portion of um, their studios and everything. But they had so many talented artists and they had a really good business plan to where they were able to still kind of figure a way to be successful. And I guess when I think about that in terms of the civil rights movement, you're going to have all these different things that happen. You, maybe you don't expect a hurricane to happen. All the stuff gets destroyed. Um, but they got their minds together and was like, you know what, this is what we love to do. We're going to make sure this is something that still stays here and is going to be successful. And so between learning about all that and just asking all of my questions, I'm like, man, we're at these legendary record labels. I got to, let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about that. Hey, give him your album. You know, he might, he might hook you up. Um, but they, um, there's a song I can't sing very well, but it's called Mr. Big Stuff. Who do, who do you think you are? Mr. Big Stuff. They're showing us all these labels or these, all these songs. And Janet, um, that was in charge of our trip in terms of making sure that we was on schedule and everything. Uh, when they got to the part where they're showing us all the songs, I'm getting excited. He wants to show us another one. She's like, no, we got to go. And he's like, oh, no, no, no more, one more. Oh, we got to go this time. Okay, That's right. That's we'll right. go, but let's play this one more. So. That's right. Um, but the music out there was amazing. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. So on to Birmingham, Alabama, and the 16th Street Baptist Church. And here we met another icon of the civil rights movement, Carolyn McKinstry, who was 14 years old at the church when the bomb planted by the KKK killed three 14-year-old girls and one 11-year-old girl. So we'll start with Hatim. What was your impression about just being at that church going to where the bomb was planted, went off, and meeting and listening to Carol, Carolyn. Um, it was interesting and, you know, very educational, just going in there and learning about everything, and I was just listening to what she was saying. And something that stuck out to me was, that I never thought about before, was the, the you know, the mental stability of the people that had to go through this. And she was talking about her depression, you know, she was, uh, she was 30 years, she had, she, for 30 years she had depression because of the bombing that happened um, at that church. And to me, I thought, I thought about like, wow, to fight for your rights, to fight for civil rights at the same time while you're trying to, you know, fight to live for yourself, um, fight depression at the same time is, must be a tremendous, tre- tremendous battle. And then, how hard that must have been for her and amongst other people. I'm pretty sure Martin Luther King and all these idols, you know, we idolize had the same issues uh, in terms of, you know, fighting depression and fighting, you know, trying to find some sanity in their mind um, because, you know, all of these things that were happening to them uh, were very traumatizing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
to add to that, I also think like in general, seeking support for mental health is already stigmatized in the African-American community. And so when she touched on that part, what she did share with us that she had depression for so long, that I thought was also extremely powerful to me because that's like almost taking up a whole nother cause and fighting um, to almost to normalize different things like that. Because here's this person that went through these things and she had it and she was able to find a way to get herself out of it. Um, but even just touching on that part, I thought was extremely powerful. But being in that church, we had seen the movie Selma either just before we arrived or just after. And, um, and so it showed us a, re- a retelling of, um, you know, the bomb when it went off, just, you know, the little girls that were down there and everything. And yes, being in that church and seeing all the images and going down to the area where it happened was um, really powerful. And it's one of those things that she also shared that, you know, the church was one of the places, the few places that her family would let her go to. Um, she talked about how she had an overprotective dad and but whenever she wanted to go to the church she was always able to go to the church and that almost became that was like a home away from home from her and so to know that all of these different things that happened but she's still at that church probably almost every day um is is really inspiring to see somebody not leaving the community and not leaving something the way it is and talking bad about it but somebody that's talking about this happened over here but this is what it is now and now we can have other people come in and see what it's like um and hear some of these stories what what struck me in meeting Carolyn McKinstry and the others that we met, was that I just didn't realize. I mean, we're talking 50 years later. They're still suffering from post-traumatic stress. I mean, from how do you get over that, being 14 and your four friends blown up? Um, Carolyn McKinstry was the one who answered the phone when the Klan called and said three minutes, and then put the phone down, went to go find an adult, and then the bomb goes off. Um, so, and that was true, I think, with Elizabeth Eckford. You could just see there was depression. I mean, it, and it's this post-traumatic stress of right, having They, they warned us that this. you couldn't have anything loud with yeah, Elizabeth yeah, Eckford. very frail and, yeah, and, right. and fragile at this point, but so strong as you could see in those pictures. So we moved on to Selma, uh, where we chatted with <clears throat> Annie Pearl Avery. She's now in her 70s. She joined SNCC when she was 16 years old. And she, when we met her, she bragged about how many times she'd been arrested. <clears throat> and she was one of those who Congressman John Lewis, she was there um, when folks were beaten as the civil rights workers tried to peacefully walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. That was in 1965. Uh, and that was Bloody Sunday when John Lewis was beaten as well. Um, so you all had chance. We all walked across the bridge, took our time crossing it. What'd you think? That bridge was inspiring, honestly. Um, I took a picture, of course. It's a historic bridge I had to take. And the story behind the bridge, too, they wanted to rename that bridge. But then the activists and people who lived through the experience said, no, keep that same name up there. We don't want people to forget the name of that bridge. The same. You know. Yes, and Edmund Pettus was a high-ranking member of the KKK. Right. Right. Uh, As well as being a a government official. And and so they they want that folks want that name to stay there to remind people that that's what that bridge and everything was about. Miles, that bridge made me feel powerful just walking across across it. And I feel like there was an energy that was imbued within myself. But I also took some time uh, for everybody on the trip. You probably see me taking a whole bunch of pictures and stuff like that. It was for work, not for me. Um, (laughs) But I was recording everybody that that was walking across the bridge. And I felt like we all had the same reaction to where we wasn't necessarily hunched over as we, as we started, but from the moment everybody started walking to the end, 
everybody was walking in like a very confident uh, body posture. And then there were some things that we were able to see at the end. But I think that bridge was really powerful, just being able to walk across it, knowing the history behind it. And um, yeah, just seeing everybody else cross, you know, cross it. Uh, Hatim and everybody was um, really cool to get that. Yeah, that image of just seeing people go across it and feel that way. Right. So we ended our trip in Montgomery, Alabama, <clears throat> where Dr. King lived from 1954 to 1960. Uh, when his home there was bombed in 1956, <clears throat> that was a point at which he vowed to adhere to nonviolence. Um, so talk to us, both of you, about what it was like actually standing in his house, um, walking through his bedroom, into his study, standing in his dining room. Um, I want to know what your reaction was. And Miles, you learned that day that you and Dr. King had something in common. Oh, Remember yeah, Remember what it was? Tell us. We shared the same height. Um, <laughs> Tell so us. So there was a story that was shared with us. Man, I hope I can remember all the different characters, uh, characteristics. But there was a story that was shared with us around how Coretta Scott King well, how Martin Luther King um, wooed Coretta Scott King. That's and there was basically four factors that really convinced her to think, you know what? Because the one thing that she always, always say to herself was, you know what? He's cool. He's too short, though. I don't know if I could do that. Um, but our guide was just telling us, you know, there was four things that really made her, his wife conv- uh, convinced that, you know what? He is a really great person. And that made him grow in her, in her mind, in her eyes. Um, the first thing was is that uh, Coretta Scott thing. She was Scott King. She was talented. She was an uh, opera singer. Right. Had a lot of talent. It was amazing. Uh, she was extremely beautiful. He was really attracted to her. Um, she was talented. Was beautiful. She had really good character, and that was one of the, the most important things to him. And. Oh, I feel like there was I one I can't more. help you with it either. I can't remember. <laughs> it was talented, beautiful, yeah. really good character, um, and smart. She was really smart. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, but it was definitely one of those things as, you know, as our guide was telling us those things, it's one thing to say like, oh, this is why I like you. This is why I like you. Hearing all those different reasons, mm-hmm. I think that gave a really good idea, like an insight into the, into the mind of Martin Luther King for what he truly <laughs> valued in a person. Um, and also his wife as well, you know, what it is that they valued in people. And I think that was a perfect match for them because they accomplished so much together and they were able to make each other. They were already great individually, but they made each other even better and elevated themselves and a community to another level. So how tall was Martin Luther King Jr.? Five, seven. How tall are you? Five, seven. There you are. <laughs> yeah. All right. We learned that. All right. How team, how did you feel? Well, I learned that the house was actually, um, like a makeshift, uh, meeting room where people were like, you know, in the community would come and meet there. And um, usually people would offer tea or coffee, but uh, Mrs. King, she would offer punch. That would be something that was like a little different from the rest. Um, And I learned to I learned how great of a role Mrs. King was in the civil rights movement. You know what I'm saying? Um, She was uh, part of the media. She had to help Martin with his ideas. You know, he would run it through her first before running through everybody else. she would help him, um, you know, sometimes with his speeches. Um, and it's just like, it's true, you know, behind every great man is some great woman out there. Or vice versa. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. Brian Stevenson, Brian Stevenson, I think, is our Martin Luther King Jr. of today. Uh, he's a visionary, 
uh, and he is a civil rights icon. His book, Just Mercy, if you've not read it, please read it, please read that book. Um, he has formed um, an organization, a nonprofit called the Equal Justice Initiative. It's doing groundbreaking work defending inmates on death row. And because of him, he created the National Memorial for Peace and Justice that's dedicated to the legacy of enslaved African Americans terrorized by lynching. So we had a chance to go to all of these places, and um, I'd like you all to describe, you two to describe your experience at the lynching monument and how it impacted you. What were you thinking when you were walking through all of this? There's so many. There's, there's so many names. Um, I think my limited knowledge of lynchings or misinformed knowledge of lynchings was that there was a few that had happened. They were obviously terrible, but not necessarily like, I didn't know that there would be that many monuments to have that many different names that's for lynchings that had 4, happened. 4,000. Yeah. And that's not all of them. Yeah. yeah. And so that was definitely really surreal in terms of seeing how, how often those things had happened. And there was just a few lynchings that we were able to take a, a deeper look into and kind of learn who some of the people were and what had happened to them. And just to think about the action that somebody would take to do that to somebody else, which I just couldn't fathom. And also just talking almost every time that we were done seeing things like that, um, we're done with museum. I had the, I was blessed with the opportunity to debrief and kind of ask some questions with the, the other Commonwealth club members that were there and just kind of sharing our different opinions and how did it make you feel? Um, what, what did you think about this is, um, heartbreaking, but really powerful, like really powerful to see like all these different things that had happened. Um, but, but blessed and fortunate to be in a place now, you know, in 2019 where we can go and, you know, there's a lot of unfortunate history that happened, but to go and learn about this history and see what had happened for what it is without it being sugarcoated. Yeah. Hakeem? For, for me, the, to end the trip with the lynching memorial, it came out of full circle because when we first went to Mississippi, the, one of the first things we learned about was Emmett Till, and that was a lynching in itself. So we started with a lynching, kind of ended with a lynching. Um, so what struck to me was seeing the reasons for the lynching. This person walked by an open window where a woman was showering. This person refused to let the white guy beat him up, refusing, like he, like it was a fight and he didn't let the other person win, therefore he's getting lynched. And so for me, it's like, I thought that, you know, Emmett Till shouldn't have whistled at that white woman. You know, that's just a thought, you, that he would have lived. After seeing the lynching memorial, I don't know how true that is because they don't care what you did. They'll make any excuse to kill you back then. And so that was an eye opening. He's like, they really did not see us as human beings back then. And it's just, it was just pure evil what they did. Yeah. One of the last lynchings I remember seeing when we were in Mississippi, there was in the museum, it was 1949. It was one person, and he was lynched. And I looked at the reason it's for hogging the road. It's done. We have some time for Q&A. So if you have any comments or any questions you'd like to pose to Hatim or to Miles, this is your opportunity to do it. Sure. I've forgotten the name, but the, the young lady who went to the high school... Elizabeth and, Eckford. ...that you met, and there's the, the famous picture of the, the white woman behind her yelling at her. Yes. I had heard that they've met Yes. and be their friends or something? Yeah, she talked about that. Uh, and 
So does everybody hear the question? It's about Elizabeth Eckford and the woman, angry woman who's yelling. So Ms. Eckford did tell us that they did meet at the request of the woman, the white woman. Um, but Elizabeth said it really wasn't sincere mm-hmm. that she was doing this now because she was embarrassed. She had her own children and this photo was out. And um, so, um, she no. She said she had amnesia. Yeah, she, she didn't quite she said, remember yeah. This is the woman, you know, everything that happened. Elizabeth wasn't buying it. And so, no, there was no kind of happy ending with that. And there is a book. No, and there is a book that is uh, recently published about it. There he is, Elizabeth and Hazel. Right. I guess I guess I have two questions. And maybe this the first question is more to Miles. Um, And then the second question is both. Um, in San Francisco, we have Washington High School, and there's a big, you know, sort of in the news right now whether or not uh, the murals at Washington High School that showed uh, George Washington, you know, with slaves and Indians and everything about that. About that. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear what your opinion is currently about those murals and whether or not the city, school district or whatever should paint over those murals. Right. And what were your thoughts on whether or not they're a reminder of what has happened in the past and, and should they remain? Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, that's actually something I've been having discussions with with my students um, over at Washington High School. That's one of the, the sites that uh, San Francisco Achievers is in. And so that discussion came up a couple of months before the news even went to the school. And I th- so in my opinion, I think it's up to the students. You know, they're the ones that attend the school. Um, you know, any issue that goes on in the school, if they feel like it's really important for them to get together and try to fight or support something, I think it's up to them. In general, my thought and also the students' thought is that on one hand, that is history. These are things that actually happened. Um, but then on the other hand is, but do we want this to be in our school? First of all, when you walk into the school, it's not like there's a disclaimer. It's not like there's a, hey, this was the artistic idea behind what we were trying to do. You walk in, you see an Indian dead. You see a Native American dead on the ground. You see an African-American, African-Americans doing slave work and stuff. And so um, even when you go to these different civil rights museums and things like that that we went to, there's a, the image or whatever it is that happened. And then there's a, a description or something you can read to find out and get more information about it. And I think without that information on those walls, that's what's kind of caused a lot of different issues for students because ninth grade, first time coming to school, Washington high school. Yeah. First president going there and think, Oh, what is this on the walls that I'm seeing and everything? You know, it's one thing to, to, to go into a history class and you learn these things and stuff, but without the context, um, I think it's been really difficult. And so when I have these conversations with my students, I guess the idea is that, they don't have a disclaimer up there. They haven't had any kind of information up there to kind of explain those different paintings. And if they're not going to put any type of explanation up there, then they should be taken down. Um, they've even um, flirted with the idea of changing the name of the school. And so I think that they need to... I think that the students that find that important enough need to get together and also the school needs to give them a voice to make that decision. Um, I don't think it's a place for myself or really the school staff to make. I think the students should be able to make that decision. Okay, Hatim, can you just just take a maybe maybe get a shorter answer? Yeah, like I got a short answer. Yeah, no problem. That's all right. And then we'll um, so if if it stays up, then you have to educate the people about it. That's the only way that I I can see it staying up. If you have a mural about um, Washington, uh, George Washington, don't just say the good things about George Washington. Say the bad things about George Washington. And if they decide not to have that up and change it to a different mural, then I think it should be a more representative mural of the uh, students that go there. Something fun. 
And, and then the second question, um, understanding how powerful this trip is, this trip was, right? Um, but also in San Francisco, there's a significant amount of African-American history that doesn't get told. But if you do a walking tour, there's markers around the city, right, that relate to the history that um, you know, African-Americans contribute to this city. That, is that something that sort of in, in your mind, uh, something that you would be willing to learn more about or would seek out or... You know, is there there's a spark that, you know, created that allows you to want to be more inquisitive about sort of the history, not just that civil rights history, but sort of the history, you know, locally, you know, or even statewide? I would say yes, definitely, because after going to Mississippi, I learned that there's some great things right underneath your nose. No need to go out the country. Go to Mississippi. No need to go out the city. Go right here in San Francisco. There's a bunch of great things to learn about and to help your own people. People, you know, you want to go to other countries, help their, help their country, you know, volunteer. That's great. But there we got homeless people right here in San Francisco. You can help them out too, feel me? So there's a lot of things that, you know, I would love to learn. The more history, the more knowledge, the better. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. I'd be, I'm definitely interested in learning a lot more, like locally, some of the history and some of the things that had happened here in the Bay Area. Um, and I also think, one of the things that this trip had opened my eyes towards, he just kind of touched on it before. Sometimes we think about going to another country, but there's so much history, not black history, but American history that had happened here in the United States in the South. Um, but even thinking about before going over to the South, for the, student, for the youth that live here in the Bay Area, that live here in San Francisco, there's a lot of historical things and historical um, figures that had happened here too. And so I'd love to learn more about it. And I'd also love to find a way to learn with the youth that we work with too, so they can learn. Mm-hmm. curious how you feel taking a trip like this in this time and place and if it was in 2009 <coughs> or 10 what a different feeling it would have been to take a trip with someone like Obama as president but did it make you angry or more cynical or did you come back feeling just much more <coughs> energized that things have to change you know for us in the 60s and 70s we lived through some of the civil rights era and we saw such tremendous progress, and now it just feels like there's been such a tremendous step okay. back. What's your reaction? It, did it energize you? Did it? My initial my initial reaction was that you know there's I have hope because we did come a long way. Before you you couldn't even walk down the same street as a white person. Now you can definitely do that and more. So we have <laughs> come a long way. But we I read it's close like. Progress should not be judged based on how far you come, but based on how much more you have to go. So that definitely gave me a, a fire in my stomach. I said, yeah, there's a lot more that we need to go. Of course, there's a huge, you know, uh, polarizing uh, energy in this feeling in this, in, this, in this country right now. You know, you have people like, this is my side, and I'm not changing. And, you know, screw you, basically. And so with this, um, you know, we have... Different ideas throughout the trip. We had conversations. People disagreed. And I think that kind of, you know, made me hopeful toward the future. And it made me think that the, what is the most effective way to reach harmony, to reach, you know, a consensus, to reach, you know, not necessarily have to uh, agree, but at least respect each other's choices. And I think that we need to have conversations, you know, and the last thing we want to do is dismiss somebody from at least talking to them and hearing them out just because 
of the category that they subscribe to in terms of ideology. Miles? Real, real quick. Uh, going to the trip, it definitely energized me. The one, like a key word that it kept popping up every single day from the guest speakers that we talked to, we can say thank you and everything. They always stop you and say thank you is great, but we need action. Uh, what actions are you going to take? And so between being there and thinking about all the different things that we had learned, um, the main thing that I brought back with me that energized me is what actions am I going to take now that I've learned, I don't know everything about our history, but I've learned a lot more about it. What actions am I going to take to do some positive actions with this, with this information, whether it's with the students that I work with or the community that I serve? Um, and I would also say just between your question about the time that we went on the civil rights trip 2019, um, I learned that one of the main reasons or one of the reasons that this trip would happen was just the fact that President Trump was elected. And if anything, I would just say that it's it's what was said on the trip was that it started a conversation about civil rights. It started a conversation about race. Um, and I think with that conversation being started, it's. Um, it's brought a couple of things to the forefront. It's brought up, you know, what progress have we actually made from the past up until now? Um, do we wish we could have made more progress? Have we made not that much progress? Um, different people might disagree with who the president is right now, but at the very least, it started a conversation. And it was the whole reason that we were able to come onto this trip and to explore some of these things. And um, so I think definitely going in the year 2019 with things going on was, um, was a good time to go to learn all these different things. And it also... Um, happy focus on just the actions that it would take for all the stuff that I learned. Yeah, I just want to pipe in that the emotions for me, um, I mean, I experienced a lot of anger. Um, and I do think, and I'd love to hear eventually, maybe afterwards from some of our travelers who are of the white persuasion, because I got a sense that some of you all felt guilt um, for how bad things still are there. So it, it was interesting, and it can't be on a trip like this when you have so many different people from different backgrounds that everyone feels the same. Um, so we experienced it in different ways, and the beauty of this trip was that spending time on that bus uh, created a safe place, a place where we could trust one another to be very forthright about how we were feeling. And how can you do that today? I mean, it's very rare experience to be able to do it. Um, and that was created by, you know, the Commonwealth Club's travel person, Christina, right here, uh, working with Janet. Um, it's very rare to be in that kind of an environment when it's so hard to talk about race, particularly today. So that's another reason why this was such a treat and was such a special kind of event. One last question. Well, that, that leads to really builds on the question that I want to ask, because I think choosing to put yourself through this experience is an act of courage in and of itself. And I'm, I'm curious about whether or not there was preparation for the trip, books to read, meeting one another, trying to anticipate what your feelings were going to be, and then some skilled facilitation to help the group process what they were going through. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. You're smiling. Did we have a book list or not? <laughs> oh, we had a book list. How many books were on that list, Christina? I mean, there was a lot of books. So we had a lot of opportunity if people had the time to be able to read. Um, and my... You know, one of my role, my main role, I guess, in, on the trip, uh, in addition to experiencing it, was to help facilitate the discussion. We discuss, we had discussions on the bus, right? We'd had, a, you know, something, we'd seen something, and then, you know, uh, we had a lot of talk about what does an apology mean? 
What's an apology? And uh, so, yeah, so this was not, outside from that, we did it cold turkey. I mean, you just, just show up in Jackson and experience it. And that's what we did. You stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so are we? Yes. Right. Well, one last thing. I think one last question. Anybody else? All right. We've got one more. Oh, me? Yes. <laughs> That's for last. Yeah. Um, it was really great to hear from all of you just now. And the one thing that I came back with, and you've touched on it a little about going around San Francisco and history and the black history and all that. But I came back thinking we need to take students there. You know, most of us or many of us went to schools that did, and they're still doing it, uh, Washington, D.C., you know, in seventh grade. And I think that's great. But this was so profound. And I'm wondering if there's been any conversation yet or thoughts about starting something like that. Need the microphone over here. Here. Hold on, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. There you go. Okay. There is a group in, in Burlingame that, that runs Sojourn to the South. And it's, um, we sent students, I taught at South City High School, and we sent students like almost every year to, to Sojourn. I think they worked with some people in San Mateo County as well. And they go to all the places too. It was about a two week trip. Have you heard of it? Sojourn? In Oakland, so I think it's expanded, but there is there are ways for kids to do this, and I think it's really really powerful. And my other question was the one she asked: Did you okay. have a reading list? Because yeah, our kids had a big reading list. Well, we had did. one, all right. Yeah. Um, so we're this is we're gonna this is we're gonna wrap it up at this time. Uh, I thank you all. Christina is gonna have the final say, but before we go, um, I have just one uh, last thing, and it's something for all of you. Um, when during the Obama administration, um, a decision was made to put um, Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill. And my guess is it's probably not going to happen, at least under the current times. So what I've done is uh, I made my own. My tub- so I have a Tubman for each one of you. And let, me, and, let me, and let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. So Harriet Tubman was uh, one of 11, born in slavery in Maryland. She was illiterate. She could not read. She could not write. Um, And at one point, uh, her slave owner threw a heavy object at her and damaged, causing her brain damage. So she had seizures, which were unpredictable. She escaped to freedom. And then what this woman did was go back 19 times. There was in today's dollars, $1.2 million bounty on her head. She was never caught, but she went to bring the enslaved out of the South to freedom. And so this Tubman, I'm going to give to each one of you, I hope to inspire you and to motivate you. And when you look at her, you see resilience. And if any time you feel these times are so awful, I can't even deal with it, or I got too much work to do, and you're just not feeling right, you don't want to do anything more, complain to her. (laughs) And what do you think she would say to you? She would say, seriously? Seriously? Really? You're having a bad day? Really? So I hope you will use the Tubman bookmark, put it on your refrigerator, but every day, take a look, be inspired, to continue the struggle for equality 
and for justice. Thank you all. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming out tonight. And thank you to everyone listening online. And now our meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. I would like to thank again, uh, Miles and uh, David Miles, Hatim Mansouri, and Judge LaDoris Cordell. Thank you so much.